Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will oversee Gaza for an indefinite period after the war, but gives few other details. It's Tuesday, November 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. State Department says it wants to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza, but does not support a ceasefire right now. It would let Hamas off the hook, allow Hamas enough time to regroup, and uh, we can't allow that. Also, the testy moments in a New York courtroom as former President Donald Trump testifies in his civil fraud trial. Plus, what's behind the decision by office flex space company WeWork to file for bankruptcy? And this hour, we visit Little Saigon, a section of Dorchester that's become a hub for the Boston-area Vietnamese community. In sports, Bruins win, Celtics lose, rain gives way to sun today in the 60s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. It's been one month since Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing at least 1,400 people. Israel has responded with airstrikes. Palestinian health officials in Gaza say 10,000 people have been killed, more than two-thirds of them women and children. Israel has rejected calls for a ceasefire. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says after the war is over, his country will have to ensure security within Gaza. I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. He spoke to ABC's World News Tonight. Netanyahu also says Israel would consider humanitarian pauses of about an hour from time to time. This would allow relief aid to enter Gaza and the release of hostages. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case that could invalidate a federal gun law. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. At issue is a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that struck down the law banning guns for those covered by domestic violence court orders. The appeals court said it violated the Second Amendment right to bear arms because there was no similar law in the 1700s. If the Supreme Court agrees, the effects would be profound. Similar state and local laws would also fall, along with an array of other gun regulations that have no precise analog to laws in the 1700s. Moreover, such a ruling would blast a giant hole in the national background check system, which last year relied on those domestic violence court orders to stop 13,000 gun sales. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The office-sharing company WeWork is declaring bankruptcy. The company rents out office and conference spaces to people and businesses that need room to operate. WeWork was once valued at $47 billion. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has officially endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the Republican presidential nomination contest. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports. Governor Kim Reynolds remained neutral for months, appearing with all the Republican presidential hopefuls who visit this leadoff state. She says she thought long and hard about whether she should weigh in ahead of the caucuses. We need someone who won't get distracted but will stay disciplined, who puts this country first and not himself. That leader is Ron DeSantis. It's not common for a governor here to endorse ahead of Iowa voters having their say. Former President Donald Trump blasted Reynolds and DeSantis, calling them disloyal and saying it's the end of Reynolds' political career. Trump, who leads in the polls, recently picked up the endorsement of Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd. The Iowa caucuses are January 15th. 
For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Polls are now open across Massachusetts on this election day. Voters in dozens of communities will take part. There are mayoral races in a number of cities, including in Worcester, Quincy, and Revere. In Boston, the city council is on the precipice of change. At least four new councilors will be elected. Former at-large councilor and mayoral candidate Anissa Saibi-George told WBUR's Radio Boston that this is a chance for the body to coalesce around new leadership. That's a critical decision, and there there seems to be today no clear power broker as it relates to council leadership. And that person, that president of the Boston City Council, is next in line should there be a departure in the mayor's office. For more information on the Boston City Council races, check out our voter guide at WBUR.org. The Medway family, trapped in Gaza for weeks because of the war between Israel and Hamas, is now back home. More now from WBMAR's Deborah Becker. Abu Dokal, his wife, Wafa Abu Zaydah, and their one-year-old son, Yusuf, arrived at Logan Airport yesterday. They left Gaza Thursday when they were permitted to cross the border into Egypt. Boston attorney Sammy Nabolsi, a friend of the family, said in a statement that the family wants privacy for the next 24 hours. It also said their thoughts are with the civilians still trapped in Gaza, including some of their loved ones. The family had been visiting relatives in Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel on a October 7th, and they were unable to leave. Medway officials are planning a welcome home celebration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston University says an internal audit found no evidence that its Center for Anti-Racist Research mismanaged its finances. The investigation is a result of allegations made by former employees following layoffs at the center. Leader Ibram X. Kendi says those layoffs were a result of a shift in the center's management structure. BU says it has hired an outside consulting group to look into the center's operating climate and culture. That investigation is is expected to take some time to complete. We should note that Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. The state's largest health insurer says it'll reduce administrative burdens to make it easier for hospitals to discharge patients who are ready to go home. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the move is meant to ease backlogs in a busy and crowded health care system. Healthcare providers say hundreds of patients are stuck in Massachusetts hospitals, often unable to leave because of delays caused by insurers. Now leaders at Blue Cross Blue Shield say they'll stop requiring hospitals to get advance approval before sending patients home to continue treatment. We know with the capacity crisis that our hospitals are facing, really every minute makes a difference. Sandhya Rao is chief medical officer at Blue Cross. This step will eliminate more than 14,000 authorizations from the system each year and hopefully help move patients from the hospital to home with fewer delays. The change takes effect in January. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey. It's 7.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Bruins beat the Stars 3-2 in Dallas last night. The Bees are now off until Thursday when they'll host the New York Islanders. Meanwhile, the Celtics lost a road game to the Minnesota Timberwolves 114-109 in overtime. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 
Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. There's a chance for rain this morning. Clouds will give way to sun by the afternoon. It'll be in the upper 60s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One month ago, Israelis and Palestinians woke up to war. Israeli officials say the Hamas massacre in southern Israel on October 7th killed an estimated 1,400 people. Authorities in Gaza say Israel's response has killed at least 10,000 people so far. But those numbers, as devastating as they are, cannot fully describe the scope of the suffering. NPR's Daniel Estrin has covered this first month of war and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Steve. So uh, arriving back here in Washington from a visit to the region, I'm reminded that not everybody in America has the geography in their heads. So I just want to remind people Israel is attacking this rectangle of land. It's only about 25 miles long. So you could drive it in half an hour if it weren't for the rubble in the way. It runs very roughly north to south. So where does the Israeli offensive on that land stand? Well, Israeli troops are still surrounding Gaza City. That is in the northern Gaza Strip, and it's where Israel says Hamas is headquartered. It's also where many Palestinian civilians still are. There's fierce fighting there. And in the last few days, Israel has announced safe passage, what they call, for Palestinians to flee south. Um, but that road where they've been fleeing is so battered that you know even elderly people I've spoken with say uh, they've had to walk miles on foot. Yeah, we've closely followed your reporting on that. How are Palestinians facing this moment one month in? They're really in survival mode, Steve. I mean, even those who have fled south, and this is an area where Israel has declared a a safe zone, they too have been caught in Israeli bombings. Our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, rushed to the scene of one of those bombings yesterday. It was at the southernmost edge of Gaza. And he met one woman, Allah al-Adi, with her young daughter. They were shaking. They were caked in debris from an airstrike. They were sitting on the steps of their home, and, and the airstrike was just seven buildings down the street. She's saying, the smell is in my throat. It's this terrible smell. It it tastes like black. I want to throw up. She says her feet were full of glass. And our producer, Anas Baba, described the woman's little daughter. She's holding her own toy. I do believe a little dinosaur that's totally colored with pink and some purples, holding it very tightly. And, you know, at that southernmost tip of Gaza, the Egyptian border is now open, but very few Palestinians are being allowed to leave Gaza through that border, only those with foreign nationalities or affiliations with foreign institutions. How are Israelis across the border reflecting on this month of war? This morning, there were radio broadcasts marked a moment of silence uh, and There's going to be a memorial ceremony with music this evening in Tel Aviv, but this is very not a moment to look back. It's still, uh, for Israelis, uh, an ongoing nightmare. There's a Hamas rocket fire ongoing, people running into bomb shelters every day. A nightmare especially for the families of more than 200 hostages held in Gaza. And we met a grandfather, Shmuel Broduch. He was wearing a T-shirt with the photos of his three young grandkids who are being held in Gaza. And he thinks Israeli leaders are not prioritizing their release. They don't feel that the children there are their children. That's my problem. I want them to feel that it's their children. I want them to go to sleep with these pictures. And meanwhile, Steve, a quarter of a million Israelis have been displaced from their homes. How does this war in size and scale and human suffering compare with other wars that you've covered there? 
Well, this is the magnitude is historic, Steve. Uh, this is the deadliest round of fighting between Israelis and Palestinians since the 1948 war, which where, where Israel was founded, where Palestinians were uprooted from their homes. So Palestinians in Gaza are fearing yet another mass displacement like that formative time. Israelis and Jews are experiencing this as the biggest single day of loss that they've had since the Holocaust. And it's nowhere near an end. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. You're welcome. We're going to stay with this story for a few more minutes. Apart from the battle with Hamas, Israel says it has been striking at targets belonging to Hezbollah militants in southern Lebanon. This after a new barrage of rockets aimed at cities in northern Israel. So the question becomes, do these battles signal a wider war that goes beyond the bounds of Gaza and Israel? To help us explore that question, we turn to Rinda Slim. She is a senior fellow and director of a conflict resolution program at the Middle East Institute. That is a nonpartisan think tank that seeks to promote better understanding of the Middle East. Rinda Slim, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Are we already seeing a spillover war? We are seeing a limited escalation, a limited spillover of the war. Uh, we are seeing uh, escalation on the Lebanese Hezbollah front, but it remains a limited tit-for-tat escalation between the two sides. And we are seeing also Iraqi militias that are close to Iran hitting U.S. assets in northeastern Syria, in western Iraq, in northern Iraq. So in that case, yes, we are seeing, but it is a limited spillover. Do you think that the potential for a broader war is part of... Israel's or Hamas's calculus right now? And I, I guess I would ask you to take those separately. Uh, Hamas will benefit from escalation or from a regional expansion, partly because it will bring into the fight resources from these other actors that are allied with Hamas in the resistance axis. It will bring these resources into the fight and help Hamas in, its, in the fight. For Israel, I think it, it, it differs. You know, uh, I mean, Israel, Israeli officials keep saying they can fight a multi-front war um, without much, you know, without too much effort. Mm -hmm. But uh, but definitely, I think it. Uh, the danger of that is to expand uh, into neighboring countries. Um, and, and I think the U.S., the U.S. involvement, part of the reason why the U.S. has sent all these military assets to the region, including recently a nuclear submarine, is to basically deter other actors from expanding this conflict. Hmm. For Israel, especially for Israeli officials like Netanyahu, a protracted war can create maneuvering room for him to salvage his political future. And for uh, the settlers uh, groups in the West Bank, uh, for them, it might be an opportunity to achieve their long-held dreams of, of establishing a Jewish state without Arabs. And we are seeing forcible transfers of Palestinians from the West Bank uh, and uh, more than 100 Palestinians Palestinians in the West Bank have already been killed by a settler groups. You, you said that this would, that a wider war would be in Hamas's interest because it would bring in other actors. But are there any other parties in which case it, that would also benefit from this? I, I don't think that, that many other parties in the region will benefit. I mean, if we take the countries, you know, like whether it is Arab Gulf countries, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Turkey, even Lebanon, I mean, Iraq, all of them, I mean, the, the government themselves, all of them have, uh, have, have said that a wider war is not in their interest. Even Iran. Iran's interest is to keep Israel mired into a never-ending conflict, especially if Israel were to re reoccupy Gaza. So, so 
for for Iran, that that goes to its benefit. It doesn't seek a resolution of the conflict, but at the same time, it doesn't seek an expansion of the conflict. Hmm. There are parties here and there, like uh, uh, Iraqi militias, that are uh, interested uh, in using this uh, conflict in their role in this conflict, in basically highlighting the resistance narrative against Israel, the Americans, and hoping that if this expands and America enters kinetically into the war and suffers from its involvement in the war, that eventually their long-held objective of kicking America out of the region uh, is achieved. Hmm. Just briefly, you know, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in an interview last night on ABC was asked, who will run Gaza after the bombardment ends? And this is what he said. I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine. As briefly as you can, how do you think a statement like that, like that is being received? I think it's being received uh, badly in, in the region. Uh, and uh, I think Israel will be facing a, an insurgency if uh, it were to go into Gaza and reoccupy it. That is Renda Slim. She's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Renda Slim, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. Thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis received a big endorsement in the state that begins the presidential nominating process. The governor of Iowa made her announcement in Des Moines last night. And here's Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Governor Kim Reynolds has remained neutral so far ahead of the caucuses, appearing with every Republican running for president. I could not and cannot sit on the sidelines any longer. Now she's made up her mind, and she's for Ron DeSantis. I am so proud to stand here tonight and give him my full support and endorsement for President of the United States of America. The two have a lot in common. They were both elected to their first full terms in 2018 and faced criticism for how they handled the pandemic. Both opened schools early and pushed back on vaccine and mask mandates. When DeSantis took the stage, he slipped in some comparisons between the two of them. I get called a lot of things now, but I think it was worse then. And I know she got called a lot of things and we took a lot of flack for that. But uh, everybody looks back now and knows that those were the right decisions. Both of them won by double digits in last year's midterm when Republicans nationally did not do as well. It's pretty unusual for a high-ranking elected official here to endorse ahead of Iowa voters having their say. Former President Donald Trump blasted both of them, calling them disloyal and saying it's the end of Reynolds' political career. And I appreciate Governor Reynolds getting involved in the process. You know, look, when you do that, some people don't like it and some people say this or that. In July, Trump criticized Reynolds for not endorsing him. Katie Wallen is for DeSantis and came to the event last night. I think it's a good move. I think a lot of people like her, so I think it would make a, it'll make a difference. Like, I think people actually care about what she says. Kathleen Jorgensen would fit that description. She plans to caucus for Vivek Ramaswamy, but still showed up to hear from her governor. Governor Reynolds, she did make Ron DeSantis my definite number two. How's that? <laughs> Having the state's top official stump for him will be an asset for DeSantis in Iowa, where he recently moved a third of his campaign staff. Still, even with her backing, DeSantis needs a lot of momentum in this uphill race dominated by Donald Trump. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, WeWork has filed for bankruptcy. The shared office space company was once valued at close to $50 billion, but floundered during the pandemic. It's 720. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. You hear familiar voices. This morning, we bring you news of a huge legal settlement. Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous phenomena. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. Cloudy skies gradually clear and will eventually have a mostly sunny afternoon with highs in the upper 60s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. From Viking and Penguin Random House Audio, publishers of My Name is Barbara, the memoir by Barbara Streisand. My Name is Barbara is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Animals loom large in the novels of Sigrid Nunez. The Friend, which won a National Book Award in 2018, addresses mourning with the help of a Great Dane. Mitts from 1998 is the biography of a tiny marmoset monkey. Her 2010 apocalyptic novel Salvation City, about a global flu pandemic, features a basset hound named Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, just like the Bob Dylan song. In The Vulnerables, her ninth novel out today, Nunez takes her readers to another pandemic, New York, in COVID lockdown in 2020. Her narrator, an unnamed writer, ends up caring for a macaw parrot whose owner gets stuck in California. It's an ode to our basic need to connect with other beings, be they human or animal, even in a global crisis that told us to stay apart. Nunez told me how her own meditations on the pandemic inspired the story. It was time to write another book. And for a time during the spring of 2020, like most writers I know, I wasn't able to write because of fears and concerns about the pandemic and the lockdown. But it came to mind, the first sentence of Virginia Woolf's novel, The Years, it was an uncertain spring. And taking off from there, I started to write about what was happening in our uncertain spring. You mentioned that you struggled to write when the pandemic happened and everybody went into lockdown. And the female narrator in this book also struggles to write in this moment of loneliness and separation. How much of her is you and how much of her is invention? Most of my books are are hybrid books. There's, um, you know, there's always a story, a plot and characters, invented characters. 
But there are elements of my autobiography in there. And with a book like The Vulnerables, what happens is that the story is invented, not every bit of it, but most of it. For example, the pandemic really happened. The lockdown really happened. The narrator locks down with the macaw and a college student. And these types of birds form a very strong bond with the person who cares for them. How did Eureka become a central part of this story? Macaws are, just as you say, they bond with people. They're beautiful. They're extremely intelligent. And I've never owned a parrot, but there used to be a, an exotic bird store on Bleecker Street. And when I was living nearby there, I used to go there very, very often to look at and interact with the birds. The narrator, like other people, can't do other things and having trouble deciding, what should I do? What is important right now? And as she says in the book, this was one thing on my agenda that I didn't have to question. The bird needed care. I knew how to give it. I was there to give it. It was a, it was a simple, direct task. And it gave me a great deal of pleasure, she says. The company is so consoling. I was very moved by that, the, the importance of caring for a being other than yourself. The female writer, who is the main narrator who writes, uh, though I've had several pets, I count not having had more animals in my life among my biggest regrets. Is that also something from your life that is part of this book? Exactly. I wouldn't attribute that kind of idea to the narrator if I didn't share it. It's part of her character, it's part of her sensibility, and it is part of mine. And yes, that is a regret I've had for, for quite some time. How did this Gen Z college student become central as well? I mean, ultimately, they form a bond in this extreme loneliness and fear that the pandemic was intergenerational. He shows up unexpectedly at the apartment where she's bird-sitting, and their relationship grows from hostile to aloof to actually close. Can you describe that relationship? Well, he's somebody who was in college in his last year when, like other college students, he was suddenly told, well, you've got to go home, we're closing down. And so he goes to be with his parents in Vermont. He is someone who has had lots of troubles. He spent a summer in a psychiatric hospital being treated for a very serious eating disorder. And that is behind him at this point. But he clashes terribly with his parents. And in fact, they end up telling him he's got to go. And that's how he comes down to Manhattan and ends up in this apartment. He had originally been the bird sitter. He still has keys to that apartment. He suddenly shows up. She is as a friend says to her, don't be so territorial. It's a big apartment. It's an emergency. Deal with it. Stop complaining. He's being very nice to you. Why can't you be nice back, etc.? And then something happens to her outside that is very upsetting, and he can tell. He has an idea that she's also not eating, and he has an idea that if he leaves an edible for her, that it will help her to eat, to feel better, and to feel less anxious and less depressed. And so they, they begin to, to do that. They begin to take some kind of marijuana most days, and then they end up talking to each other and revealing certain things and, and laughing a lot and enjoying each other's company. It did feel like almost a, a meditation on companionship in loneliness and 
in isolation. Well, and of course, she's this is this this narrator doesn't have any children of her own, has never had children. So there, you know, there is a certain maternal feeling that she that she begins to have for him. And I also think that although it's described as unlikely, I don't think it's all that unlikely what happens between them. In fact, I think that was part of the point of the story that you know, when people are thrown together in situations like that, people do realize how much they need each other and how much they can give each other, even in small ways. I mean, that he would notice her distress even though she hasn't been particularly nice to him and feel like he could do something to alleviate that, I think is the most natural human feeling in the world. That's author Sigrid Nunez. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, our field guide to Boston explores Little Saigon, a section of Dorchester that's become a nucleus for the Vietnamese community. It's 7.29. Calling all crafters, join us at City Space on Monday, November 13th for an evening dedicated to DIY and homemade creations. Free tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu slash together. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. Secretary General is renewing his call for Israel to implement an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza to protect civilians. Linda Fasulo has more. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres told reporters that Israeli ground operations and bombardment are hitting civilians, hospitals, mosques, and U.N. facilities, including shelters and schools. No one is safe, he noted. Meanwhile, Guterres said that at the same time, Hamas and other militants are using civilians as human shields, continue to launch rockets indiscriminately towards Israel, and hold Israeli hostages. In Ohio today, voters are deciding whether to approve an amendment to the state constitution to protect abortion rights. Joe Ingalls with Ohio Public Radio reports. Supporters of the proposed amendment, like Lauren Blavelt with Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, spent the weekend knocking on doors of voters trying to get the vote out. If Ohioans vote in favor of the amendment, it would effectively scuttle a law now on hold in the courts that bans abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy. Opponents of the amendment say passage would also take away the rights of the government to put limitations and restrictions on abortion. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is Election Day in dozens of cities and towns across Massachusetts. Polls are open until 8 tonight. In Boston, voters will pick at least four new city councilors. There are elections for mayor in cities including Worcester, Medford, and Waltham. Polls close it tonight at 8. The Secretary of State says if you've got a mail-in ballot but haven't sent it in yet, you should bring it to your local elections office or a ballot drop box. Brandeis University no longer plans to recognize the campus chapter of National Students for Justice in Palestine as a student group. The non-sectarian Jewish school is the first college in the country to do that. The school says the group has openly supported the Hamas terrorists. It'll no longer receive university funding or be able to hold events on campus. Those involved in the group say they're being silenced by the university. The school says students who want to support Palestinian civilians can form a different group. The city of Boston has a new groundbreaking database detailing people who were enslaved in the city. WBOR's Lainey Ruxtell reports. The database currently lists more than 2,300 people and many of their enslavers as well. Kira Singleton was one of its curators. She says that's likely just the tip of the iceberg, and she expects the database to grow. The biggest implication is to really demystify the fact that slavery is a part of Northern society, that it was a part of Massachusetts. I think so often we still associate slavery with a Southern story, but look at how widespread and prevalent it was. The database can be found at boston.gov and a corresponding exhibit is on view at Faneuil Hall indefinitely. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. The Bruins beat the Stars 3-2 in Dallas last night. Meanwhile, the Celtics lost a road game to the Minnesota Timberwolves 114-109 in overtime. Light showers are possible for the next couple hours, then overcast skies gradually clear. The afternoon will be mostly sunny in the upper 60s. Temperatures fall to the mid-30s tonight and skies stay mostly clear. Sunny tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. WeWork has filed for bankruptcy. This company lets you sublease office space for a month or a day or even an hour. When you need an office, they're there to give it to you, but apparently many people no longer want it. NPR's Bobby Allen joins us now. Bobby, good morning. Good morning. So how did it come to be that WeWork's business model no longer works? 
Yeah, well, to understand that, we have to go back in time to the height of WeWork back in 2019. The company was worth $47 billion back then. And yeah, what the company basically did was, as you mentioned, spruce up office spaces and made them feel like hip cafes with free kombucha and beer on tap and let people work there very short term. Uh, back then, the company CEO was this guy, Adam Newman, who was this erratic, lanky, uh, flamboyant entrepreneur who liked to say that WeWork's goal was to elevate the world's consciousness uh whatever that meant it okay. got deep-pocketed investors to pour lots and lots of money in we were tried to go public that year in 2019 but it was a spectacular failure okay wait a minute erratic and flamboyant <laughs> entrepreneur what could possibly have gone wrong yeah yeah well it became clear that when investors actually looked at the company it had no idea how it would ever turn a profit big surprise right it rented long-term leases in the short term to get really competitive deals right great deals for the people who were renting but it had no idea how it was going to fill space into the future eventually newman this colorful character was ousted and the company nearly collapsed but in recent years it it brought in new leadership it scaled back its size it did manage to finally go public but it wasn't enough to turn the company around it kept running out of money it tried renegotiating its office spaces with landlords nothing worked so now WeWork has filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and steve i just checked and the company's stock is down 99.2 percent from the start of the year it's now worth 44 million dollars wow. so a far cry from 50 billion wow wow okay so you've explained some of the problems with the business model but does this also reflect changes in society Yes. So it did. The company did scale back quite a bit, but it has 700 locations in 30 countries. Right. But is this just a WeWork problem or a larger problem? You know, there's an office market crisis right now. It's a really terrible time to be a landlord since workers aren't going into the office as much since the pandemic. Obviously, the, the rise of remote work has really hurt office subleasing companies like WeWork. But consider this. I mean, WeWork's troubles are really going to ripple into many office markets. In New York City, for example, WeWork is the biggest corporate tenant, uh, and in its bankruptcy filing, WeWork says it owes $100 million in unpaid rent. So that's a lot of rent wow. to own to your landlord. Wow. So they, they had so much real estate, you're saying this will even affect real estate prices for other people with offices to rent. What does yeah, it mean absolutely. for specific WeWork locations? There must still be some people going into these offices. Yeah, so the bankruptcy process will help WeWork get out of office leases that are performing really badly, and it will help the company renegotiate with landlords on leases that it wants to keep. But, you know, you can expect many locations shutting down, as many as 100 locations the company says could close. What does the company say about its next steps? Yeah, WeWork is emphasizing that bankruptcy doesn't mean it's shutting its doors for good. Most of the company's spaces will still be operational, but, um, you know, there will just be a lot of tough negotiating happening behind closed doors. Um, like I mentioned, many dozens of locations are expected mm -hmm. to close, but the company itself, it's not disappearing anytime soon, Steve. NPR's Bobby Allen, thanks so much. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump took the witness stand yesterday in a New York courthouse. He was there to answer questions related to fraudulent financial statements made by the Trump Organization, statements that were used to secure business and credit deals with banks, and also to measure Trump's net worth. New York's Attorney General is accusing Trump, along with several associates, of knowingly committing fraud by inflating the value of these assets. NPR's Jimena Bustillo was in the courthouse, and she's with us now to tell us what she saw. Good morning. Good morning. Jimena, we keep hearing how it got pretty testy in there. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, it didn't take long for the pair to clash. This is not the first time that they met face to face. Trump has come to multiple days of this trial, even though he's not required to. And don't forget that he was called up to the witness stand once before by Judge Arthur and Goron himself to answer questions about comments he made that violated a gag order. Now, yesterday during the first hour, there were some tense exchanges between the judge and Trump's legal team and Goron at one point beseeching the Trump team to quote control him and that was his word beseeching and he felt trump was going on long speeches and some that included tangents about his properties and political success or how he thought the judge was politically motivated and goran seemed to have no patience for this and even went as far as to remind trump that this is not a political rally still though trump called the state attorney general a political hack and doubled down on many of the personal insults that he's been leaning on since the start of this trial trump's team also also argued that the nature of this case, being that Trump is a front runner for the GOP nomination and there is no jury, should warrant longer answers than perhaps the judge wants. Speaking of those facts, let's just recap those briefly. New York Attorney General Letitia James says Trump was part of an effort to inflate and sometimes deflate mm-hmm. the value of Trump organization assets to get better deals. Trump and his co-defendants have actually already been found liable for fraud. So this trial will decide the potential punishment. James wants them banned from doing business in the state and $250 million in penalties. So what what further arguments has the prosecution made? Well, the attorney general's team has brought up various witnesses who worked within the Trump organization and the accounting firm Mazars to generally ask about how these documents were created. And this includes the literal math. We've been staring at a ton of spreadsheets, but also the hierarchy and power influence that higher ranking Trump organization executives such as Donald Trump may have had. Ultimately, the executives of the Trump organization, including Trump and his sons, Eric and Donald Jr., signed off on these statements that have already been found to be fraudulent and may have been responsible for them even if they didn't do the number crunching themselves. Still though, some witnesses have testified that Trump did want the numbers to be higher for certain perks, like landing on the Forbes Top 100 list. So we heard the two of the president's sons, Eric and Don Jr., testified last week. His daughter, Ivanka Trump, is due to take the witness stand tomorrow. What can we expect to hear from her? Well, Ivanka is the last witness uh, that the attorney general's team is putting forward. And unlike her brothers, she is not a defendant. Her attorney successfully argued that any related actions Ivanka had at the Trump organization happened before the statute of limitations kicked in. But the attorney general's team plans to rest their case after that. And then the Trump team will begin to lay out their case the following week. That is NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Jimena, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, voters in Ohio are weighing whether their state should become the seventh since Roe v. Wade was overturned to pass a constitutional amendment protecting the right to an abortion.
Light rain is possible through about mid-morning, then it gradually clears for a sunny day today in the upper 60s. Overnight, it falls to the mid-30s, then upper 40s tomorrow and sunny. It's 55 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Boston-based General Electric will settle claims it sold improperly inspected parts to the U.S. Army and Navy. Those parts were made at the GE Aerospace plant in Lynn. The company will pay nearly $9.5 million to settle the deal. GE officials say they alerted the Department of Justice as soon as they learned of the issues. The company says the parts had no impact on aircraft safety. Worcester-based Fallon Health is moving its corporate headquarters, but it's staying in the city. The new location at 1 Mercantile Street is just half a mile from the Fallon's current Elm Street headquarters. The new location is part of a new development that includes housing, a hotel, and other retail space. The move is expected to happen at the end of next year. It's 744. WBUR supporters include Babson College where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinhoi. There's a corner of Boston's Dorchester neighborhood that's long been an important home for New England's Vietnamese community. It's called Little Saigon. In 2021, the state designated it as an official cultural district. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy hosts our daily podcast, The Common. He visited Little Saigon for our field guide to Boston. His guide for the day was Annie Lay, who's the board president of the cultural district. She welcomes us to the neighborhood's national night out celebration over the summer. We just saw the lion dance. Um, it traditionally opens up a lot of events and ceremonies and is supposed to ward off the evil and bring in good spirits. Um, so it's, it's a very like opening, good harmony, good luck event to have. Daryl's here to tell me more about what he experienced in the neighborhood. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> What's the history of Little Saigon? How did it come about? So as it was explained to us, Little Saigon became a a community after the Vietnam War when a lot of refugees came over here and they settled in Boston, particularly in that section of Dorchester. And uh, we also spoke with uh, someone, Kang Nguyen. He's the board member for Boston Little Saigon and vice president of the Vietnamese American Community of Massachusetts. He explained to us that with all those people there in that part of Dorchester, they decided to call it Little Saigon naming it after the former capital of uh, South Vietnam until it fell to North Vietnam during the war. They called it Little Saigon as a thank you to all the people who fought for South Vietnam during that war and as a way to say thank you to those folks. You know, um, um, one thing I remember him saying was, we remember uh, friends forever, you know, so it's it's their way of saying thank you. So that's that's some of the history behind Little Saigon, Boston, Little Saigon. 
And has it served as kind of like a nucleus for Vietnamese communities in New England overall? Yeah, yeah. Annie Lay told us that people from all over New England come to Boston Little Saigon. In fact, I'll I'll let her explain the rest. With the Vietnamese American community having the festival, people can go and take pictures, enjoy the performances. Some families come every year just to take photos. So think of it, I guess you could think of it as a little somewhat of a pilgrimage of some sort when you, you know, when you get homesick, you just want to be around your folks, you know? It's not a secret that you like your food. So oh, oh yeah. did you make a stop in Little Saigon? Yes, we did. Uh, we made a couple stops. We stopped at, so we went to the grocery store. <laughs> There's a grocery store there called Gen 10 Supermarket. And it's a Vietnamese grocery store and they have uh, a, a lot of food that you're not going to get at, say, a stop and shop or something. And we decided to try a few things. I tried uh, this grass jelly drink, which was really refreshing and tasty. We also had a durian. A yeah, durian um, is but a, you didn't smell it right because durians are just like awful smelling. So we had a frozen durian. Okay, that's better. Yeah, I got the sense from just it being frozen. I get why people are not a huge fan of it. Oh, it's awful. I loved it. Okay. I loved it. But, then never uh, yeah. smell it because then your opinion will change. <laughs> so, yeah. well, But that's some of the stuff that you can find in Boston Little Saigon. It was really dope. It was a great experience. And also we went to Filet and we had some food there. And I will say one of the things I had there that I really enjoyed was the chicken wings. We do these neighborhood tours for the field guide to kind of tell people how they can connect to this place as a home. And what did you learn about Little Saigon that kind of gave you some insight into that? Yeah, I think Little Saigon really helped me understand that Boston is a city where you can find that connection to home. I think for me, being somebody who is new to the city, finding that connection for myself was important. So I imagine if you are Vietnamese and you want some Vietnamese food or you want to feel like, like I said, you want to be with your folks, there's a place for you here in Boston. That's what's really cool about these tours is that we're trying to highlight these spots to let people know that Boston is a city that can welcome you, that will welcome you. You know, there's somewhere here for you, right? So you can go to Filet, get your food. You can go to, to Trent, Ten Chen. Uh, Gen 10, excuse me, get your groceries and still keep connected, right? And be comfortable in Boston. Boston has so much to offer and Little Saigon is definitely playing their part in all of that. That's what we did. You know, I was, I grew up in Iowa. We used to drive like four or five hours every month to Chicago to this one street. It's called Devon Mm -hmm. to get all the Indian groceries we needed for a month. Sometimes it was like in a snowstorm, no matter what we would go because we needed that food. Yeah. And it's a big part it's it's an it's an important part of your life yeah. you know you need that you know so it's the connection to your culture so for a city to have that it's invaluable you can't put a price on that check out the common wherever you get your podcasts daryl c murphy thank you so much for stopping by morning edition thank you for having me on morning edition check out the field guide to boston at wbur.org slash field guide you'll find local recommendations for every neighborhood in the city and you can sign up for a newsletter to get tips about navigating boston straight to your inbox Coming up at 825 here on WBUR, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case challenging a federal law that bans people under domestic violence court orders from buying firearms. It's 750. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Institute for Experiential AI, hosting AI and Life Sciences, a Collaboration to Meet the Moment webinar on November 8th, a conversation between the Institute's Director of AI and Life Sciences, Sam Scarpino, and Adam Bly, CEO of System. Registration is free at ai.northeastern.edu. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country will be responsible for overall security in Gaza when it wins its war against Hamas. The U.S. Supreme Court will consider an argument today against banning guns from those subject to domestic violence court orders. And polls are open in Massachusetts for voters casting their ballots in dozens of mayoral and city council races around the state. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Some light showers are possible through about mid-morning today. Then it clears up for a mostly sunny afternoon in the upper 60s. Tonight, clear skies in mid-30s. Tomorrow, lots of sun and mid-40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. The October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel has many questioning the leadership of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Over the weekend, Israeli protesters gathered outside his home demanding he resign. They're asking how this government didn't know what was going on in the blockaded Palestinian enclave of Gaza, where Hamas rules and Israel and Egypt control the borders. Why it took the military hours to rescue civilians as gunmen overran their towns, killing more than 1,400 people, according to the Israeli government, and taking more than 240 hostages. That's the backdrop of Israel's response in Gaza, where Palestinian health officials say Israeli bombardments and ground operations have killed upward of 10,000 people and induced a man-made humanitarian crisis. Netanyahu has dismissed calls for a pause in hostilities from much of the international community unless it means the unconditional return of the captives. Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas. And his public statements have raised alarm among some critics. He's twice referenced violent passages in the Bible to justify Israel's devastating response, including this one. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. Speaking Hebrew, he's comparing Hamas to the nation of Amalek in a passage from the book of Samuel. That passage says to smite the Amalekites after the nation launched a vicious surprise attack on the Jewish people. Moti Anbari is a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. The biblical commandment is to completely destroy all of Amalek. And when I'm talking about completely destroy, we're talking about killing each and every one of them, including babies, including their property, including the animals, everything. Already, Palestinians in Gaza and human rights groups accuse Israel of indiscriminate attacks that caused mass civilian casualties. Israel's army maintains it does not deliberately target civilians, that the deaths are a byproduct of Hamas entrenched in densely packed areas inside the Gaza Strip. Inbari says his concern stems from the symbolism Netanyahu projects with the biblical metaphors he's used. Well, you know, he's, he's playing with words. He can always say that he didn't mean it like that. Mm-hmm. but. It might be that people who are hearing him, you know, soldiers on the ground field, 
that are coming from orthodox background. And there are many soldiers in the ground field that are coming from orthodox background. When they hear him talking about remembering Amalek, it sets for them something that may be understood differently, you know, by you and me. So there might be that there will be soldiers and commanders or people on the ground that will understand the message that is coming from above, from the leadership of the, of the state, as allowing them to do something similar to what Hamas has done to Israel. Now, Netanyahu has quoted the Bible before as prime minister, but typically, Anbari says, Netanyahu is appealing to an international audience and citing the Jews' biblical right to the land. Quoting these particular passages marks a shift, Anbari says. Ever since this war began, he is always quoting the Bible. And in his last statements were the strongest so far in the way he quoted the Bible. And I was intrigued and I was a little bit concerned about this because mm. typically when Hamas and Hezbollah have used the language of holy wars in the way in which they are, you know, describe their fight with Israel, Israel never responded in such language because, uh, first of all, Israel is a secular state. It's not a religious state. It's not a fundamentalist state. But secondly, when you are talking in the language of holy wars, there can be no resolution that includes a compromise to that conflict. You are fighting in the name of God, and when you're fighting in the name of God, it is a total war until a total victory of the God of Israel over the God of the enemy, mm. even though it's the same God in that, in that context. But it is always like it's a total and complete war with no way of compromising. It's very unusual, yeah. And Netanyahu always tried to distance himself from his orthodox partners. He always tried to show himself as a person who is a secular Jew. Although he has partners who are orthodox, he's different from them. And he always tried to emphasize it to the general audience. Mm. Now he's blurring those lines and you have to understand, Netanyahu is a very calculated person. So if he's using it, it's probably, there's a good reason for that. It's not, it's not a coincidence. Why do you think he's using it? His ratings are very low. He needs to reach back to his base and bring back his ratings. Now, the public polls that are conducted in Israel are, are terrible for Netanyahu right now. It's a really difficult place, right? A massacre in southern Israel yes. that left over 1,400 people killed, over 200 hostages in Gaza. The images coming out of Gaza with so many civilians killed, thousands among them children. I mean, when you talk about this war and this development is disturbing, what is it? You don't want to turn Israel into a war with Islam, the Judaism against Islam, because Israel... Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about peace with Saudi Arabia. So if Judaism is in war with Islam, Israel won't be able to have peace with Saudi Arabia. and won't be able to have peace with Egypt and Jordan and other states. So it's not strategically smart to invoke this metaphor that Judaism is at war with Islam. Mm. Israel is at war with a segment of the Palestinian people. It's called Hamas. This is how we need to to treat it, in my opinion. Moti Inbari, professor of philosophy and religion at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you very much.
In a statement to NPR, the prime minister's office says, quote, Israel's defined war mission is to destroy Hamas, unquote. It goes on to say the proportional response to the October 7th massacre carried out by Hamas is the destruction of Hamas. Anything less will not prevent future Hamas attacks, unquote. The White House says President Biden raised the need for humanitarian pauses in a phone call yesterday with Netanyahu, but no agreement was reached. Later, in an interview with ABC News, Netanyahu suggested he might be open to what he described as tactical little pauses for an hour here or there to allow aid into or hostages out of Gaza. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country will have overall security responsibility in Gaza for an indefinite period after it defeats Hamas. It's Tuesday, November 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the UN Secretary General says Israeli bombs are turning Gaza into a, quote, graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. And another Denver area police officer has been found not guilty in the death of a young black man who was put in a neck hold. Also this hour, Boston is working on what's thought to be the first comprehensive database of people enslaved in the city. So often we still associate slavery with a Southern story, but look at how widespread and prevalent it was. Bruins win, Celtics lose, skies gradually clear for a sunny day today in the 60s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Israeli military says it surrounded Gaza City and is preparing for ground battles. This comes as health authorities in Gaza report Israeli attacks have killed more than 10,000 Palestinians, more than two-thirds of them women and children. Israel is marking exactly one month since Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing more than 1,400 people. More people with foreign passports will be able to leave Gaza and enter Egypt at the Rafah crossing today. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reports from Tel Aviv. People from the Philippines, Ukraine, Moldova and other countries are eligible to leave the besieged Gaza to relative safety today. Hundreds of new names of foreign nationals appeared on the latest approval list. This allows these individuals to cross into the only open border into Egypt. The border crossing just reopened on Monday after being temporarily shut over the weekend. The closure was over an apparent dispute over evacuating injured patients. For the more than 2 million Palestinians still living in Gaza, there is still no way to leave. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News, 
Tel Aviv. Former President Donald Trump has told a New York judge his statements of financial value were, quote, not important. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports on heated exchanges yesterday in Trump's civil fraud trial. On the witness stand, under oath, Trump used the opportunity to lash out at the New York Attorney General's case, saying the case is a fraud, that the evidence is so old he can barely remember what happened, and that, if anything, his property values were much larger than he stated. But the assistant attorney general walked him through statement after statement, asking if he believed they were truthful and how he arrived at them. Trump pushed back, saying the banks were thrilled with him and that there was a disclaimer in the statements that meant the banks were supposed to check his work. But when the AG pressed, asking if the statements were accurate, Trump said, I guess so. I can't really answer that. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. It's Election Day in several states. In Virginia, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin is trying to persuade voters to give Republicans control of both chambers of the state legislature. From member station VPM in Richmond, Ben Pavier has this report. Youngkin's agenda for tax cuts and decreased regulations hinges on Republicans' ability to flip Virginia's Senate and hold the House. Youngkin is also calling for a 15-week abortion restriction, with exceptions for rape, incest, and if a mother's life is in danger. Democrats have blanketed the airwaves with ads warning Republicans can't be trusted on the topic. They've argued GOP candidates are out of touch with the electorate on issues like gun control and climate change, in a state President Joe Biden won by 10 points. If Youngkin pulls off another set of wins in that environment, some GOP donors have called for him to enter the presidential race. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Polls are now open for Election Day in more than 80 cities and towns across Massachusetts. There are races for mayor in Worcester, Springfield, Revere, and other cities. In Boston, the entire city council is up for election. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports some local activists fear progressives could lose key seats today. The council is losing two of its most prominent progressives after Kendra Lara and Ricardo Arroyo lost the preliminary election. Former Jamaica Plain Progressives co-chair Ed Burley says he's confident a new generation of leaders will step up to replace them. They're not going to be the same as the person we lost, but they'll have their own spin on things and their own skill and their own piece of the solution to contribute. Labor attorney Ben Weber is running against IT director William King in District 6, and neighborhood organizer Enrique Pepin is running against former police officer Jose Ruiz in District 5. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. For a breakdown of today's Boston City Council races, check out our voter guide at WBUR.org. A Plymouth family is headed back home after being trapped in Gaza for nearly a month. The family of five was able to cross the border with Egypt yesterday. Hanish Shafi is a relative of the family. He says an outpouring of support helped them get through the ordeal. To too many people, you know, the neighbors that they have, the people of Plymouth, and their support and prayers to the family and the congressional delegation of Massachusetts. They've been really helpful. It's unclear when the family will be back in Plymouth. Another family from Medway who was trapped in Gaza safely made it back to Massachusetts last night.
Young survivors of gun violence face mental health and substance use disorders at dramatically higher rates than their peers. That's according to new research from Mass General. Researchers compared young gun violence survivors with others their age who were not impacted. Dr. Zuri Song helped lead the study. He says researchers also surveyed the impacts of gun violence on family members. Family members, in this sense, are survivors, too. They are confronted with their own increases in mental health and health care needs. For example, parents of children who survived a firearm injury experienced a roughly 30 percent increase in their own psychiatric disorders. Song says the study could help guide long-term care for young survivors of gun violence and their families. The Salem City Council will now read a land acknowledgement statement before each of its meetings. That statement acknowledges the Massachusetts tribe, which held the land before English settlers arrived. The Salem News reports the tribe reviewed the exact language in the statement before it was unanimously approved by councilors. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPA's Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. The Celtics lost their first game of the season last night. They fell to the Minnesota Timberwolves 114-109 to in overtime. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. The Bruins topped the Dallas Stars 3-2 to last night in Texas. The Bees will be back home Thursday to play the New York Islanders. There is a chance for rain this morning. Clouds will give way to sun by the afternoon. It'll be in the upper 60s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid 40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We have an assessment now of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. A satellite map at npr.org gives some idea of where Israeli troops have moved. Gaza is a rectangle of land along the Mediterranean shore. In the upper part of that rectangle is Gaza City, now surrounded by Israeli troops. In the lower part of that rectangle is an evacuation zone where Israel's government ordered civilians to move, although its airstrikes have hit there too, according to NPR employees on the ground. Israel says it wants to destroy Hamas after its attack on Israel one month ago. Amir Avivi is watching all of this. He is a retired Israeli brigadier general and former deputy commander of the Gaza division. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Do you feel you understand the purpose of surrounding Gaza City? Well, I think that uh, following the atrocities, really the vicious attack, the beheading, the raping, the burning of children and and women and the kidnapping, Israel sets very clear goals for this war. And the goal is the complete destruction of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, is dismantling completely all their terror capabilities and making sure that never again Never again there will be a terror army in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Now, in order... How does, to... how does, surrounding, how does surrounding Gaza City uh, serve that goal, then? So I'll say what is the, bo- the bottom line. The bottom line will be conquering the whole Gaza Strip, all of it. The bottom line will be dismantling for many, many months 
and maybe a year or more, all these terror capabilities that Hamas has built for more than uh, 17 years. And I think that the world will be shocked by what they really build inside Gaza, the way they utilize the money the world gave them uh, to really build a, one big underground fortress, which is not only underground, but most of it underground. And we are just at the beginning. We, we surrounded the So it sounds like you're telling me... Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's make sure we understand this then. You're saying that surrounding Gaza City is attacking Hamas facilities there and that that is really a first step, that Israeli troops, you believe, as someone who has observed this and knows the Israeli military well, you believe they will ultimately take everything. Yeah, because if you don't do that, you cannot really uh, manage to fulfill the goals the government set. If you want to completely destroy Hamas, the northern part is the smallest part. Yes, it's a center of gravity. Yes, it's the center of uh, command and also, the I would say, the government of Hamas. But Hamas is very dominant and strong also in the center and south of Gaza. And you cannot achieve the goals of war just by conquering and destroying its capabilities in the northern part of uh, the Gaza Strip. So eventually, uh, we'll have to also uh, operate in the center and the south of uh, Gaza until we really destroy all the capabilities, all the leaders of the terrorists, all the terrorists and all the infrastructure. Just so that I understand what comes next then, we've been interviewing Israeli officials uh, in Israel and, and, and wherever we can find them over the last week. An Israeli official said in this program it was premature to talk about who runs Gaza after Israel takes it. Another Israeli official a couple of days ago told me that there was a talk of some kind of combination of local and international forces who might control Gaza. Prime Minister Netanyahu told ABC uh, yesterday that maybe Israeli forces would control it for an indefinite period after the conquest. Who's running Gaza on the day after? So I think that the first question needs to be, what are the security terms? And I think that the government is uh, stating more and more what was evident to me from day one, in order to make sure that there will be no buildup of terror infrastructure in the future. You need two things. You need to control the border with Egypt, because today Gaza is connected to Egypt. They have a sure. common border of uh, something like 10 miles. And through this border, endless amount of weapons, of know-how, of technologies, of uh, terrorists, and money is going in and out. Uh, if you want to stop the flow of capabilities into the Gaza Strip, you need to control this border. And the other thing is that you need a full freedom of operation for the IDF the day after to apprehend terrorists in this region. Okay, that's really interesting. So that suggests that Israel will insist on full freedom of movement to go wherever it wants to do, strike whatever it wants to strike, whoever they try to find to run the place. General, thanks very much. That's very helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is retired Israeli Defense Forces Brigadier General Amir Avivi. He is in Tel Aviv. Now, to see that map that we mentioned and to find many views in this conflict, visit NPR's website, npr.org slash updates. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion rights advocates in many states have brought the issue directly to voters. Now, in Ohio, voters are deciding whether to establish a constitutional right to abortion in that state. That election ends tonight. We're joined by Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls, who's covering this. Welcome back. 
Good morning. Okay, so uh, it's Election Day in Ohio. What would this constitutional amendment do if it passes? This amendment would guarantee the right to an abortion up to the point of viability and later if a doctor deems it is necessary for the health or life of the mother. Okay, up to the point of viability, that is different, of course, in different pregnancies, but we're talking about several months into a pregnancy that you would have a right to an abortion, correct? Correct. Okay, so that is what the constitutional amendment would do. What is Ohio's law right now? Well, Ohio has a six-week abortion ban that was in place for 82 days last summer after Roe versus Wade was overturned, but a group of doctors took that to a county court, and the court ruled that the law was vague mm-hmm. because it wasn't being applied uniformly. So now that ban is before the Ohio Supreme Court, and the Republican-dominated Ohio Supreme Court could reinstate it if this amendment fails, but if the amendment passes, um, the, the, it would no longer be constitutional. Okay, okay. Um, let me ask something else. Didn't Ohio already have a vote somewhat on this issue earlier this year? Yes, in August, uh, Republicans had put an issue on the ballot, a constitutional amendment that would have increased the threshold for passing constitutional amendments, including this one, to 60 percent. But that effort failed. Oh, okay. So they were trying to change the rules under which this election would take place. That didn't happen. Correct. So a majority gets to decide what the Constitution in Ohio will say. What are you hearing from voters now as Election Day arrives? Well, there are a lot of different opinions. There have been tens of millions of dollars poured into ads here. Very contentious, very contentious issue, highly advertised. Uh, The governor and his wife have appeared in an ad saying this amendment, which is similar to the one in Michigan, goes too far. But the polls show that there is very low support for the six-week abortion ban. And the polls also show that somewhere between 56 to 58 percent of Ohioans support some abortion rights. Now, Ohio is a red state. You remember that. But um, abortion has been on the ballot in several states uh, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And in each instance, in both red and blue states, anti-abortion activists or advocates have lost. Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls, thanks for your insights. Thank you. A jury in Colorado has acquitted a second Aurora police officer in the death of Elijah McLean. McLean, a slender young black man, died after being tackled by police and injected with ketamine by paramedics. He had no weapons. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry has this report. Officer Nathan Woodyard was the first on the scene when McLean was walking home from a convenience store after buying iced tea. He grabbed McLean within the first few seconds. Hey, stop right there. Stop. 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 I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. Turn around. I'm going home. Relax or I'm going to have to change this situation. Woodyard did indeed change the situation. Prosecutors say his actions and failure to follow his own policing rules directly led to McLean's death. But the jury disagreed. People of the state of Colorado, V. Nathan Woodyard, we the jury find the defendant not guilty of manslaughter, reckless, and the lesser included offense of criminally negligent homicide. Woodyard was one of three officers who stopped McLean on a 911 call of a suspicious person four years ago. The 23-year-old massage therapist had not committed any crimes and didn't have any weapon. 
Police forcibly detained him, and then medics gave him a strong sedative. He died a few days later. Officer Woodyard was charged with reckless manslaughter in McLean's death. When Woodyard used a carotid hold on McLean, he did not follow rules for caring for someone after they received that hold. State Prosecutor Ann Joyce. They did not listen to him when he said, I can't breathe. They did not listen to him when he started to drown in his own vomit. Officer Woodyard testified, tearfully at times, that he regretted what happened and that he wished he could do everything over. He said he truly believed other officers and paramedics on the scene were caring for McLean. When I walked away, I thought he was safe. Did you trust other officers would take care of him? I did. Did they? No. I know that now. McLean's mother, Shanine, walked out of the courtroom silently with her fist in the air. During this trial, she has expressed frustration with the lack of accountability. All of them are guilty of putting their hands on my son. They all went against their own police department protocol. They're all guilty. One former Aurora officer has already been convicted of criminally negligent homicide in McLean's death. Another was acquitted. A trial for the paramedics who gave McLean an overdose of ketamine starts in a couple of weeks. For NPR News, I'm Allison Sherry in Denver. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from officials in Maryland who are struggling to respond to rising gun violence among juveniles. It's 819. I'm Scott Tong. After the United Auto Workers succeeded in getting big pay raises from the big three automakers, a look at the union and its firebrand leader, Sean Fain. We're thinking together about the core question of the labor movement. How do working-class people build the power we need to win what we deserve? That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. There's a chance of light rain through about mid-morning today. Then some gusty winds help move clouds out and we'll eventually have a mostly sunny afternoon with highs in the upper 60s. Tonight, mostly clear in mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the upper 40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. That is the sound of legendary Boston boy band New Edition. The group will announce it'll begin a Las Vegas residency next year. Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike, Ralph, and Johnny have been touring North America for the last two years. The set of shows at the Win Las Vegas will begin February 28th. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere November 10th. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. 
More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court hears an effort to ensure that people accused of domestic abuse have a right to arm themselves. A federal law makes it possible to ban firearms for people who are the subject of a domestic violence court order. If the court should overturn that law, it would invalidate similar laws in most states and potentially other important gun laws as well. It's the latest chapter in the High Court's new Second Amendment doctrine, as NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Sixteen months ago, the Supreme Court broke sharply with the way gun laws had been handled by the courts in the past. In a landmark decision, the conservative majority ruled that in order to be constitutional, a gun law has to be analogous to a law that existed at the nation's founding in the late 1700s. Since then, Second Amendment advocates have brought all manner of challenges to state and federal gun laws across the country, plunging the lower courts into conflicting conclusions about how precise the analog has to be. Today's case is the first to test how far the conservative court wants to go. At issue is the federal law that makes it a crime for anyone subject to a domestic violence court order to possess a gun. The defendant in the case, Zaki Rahimi, is something of a poster child for why Congress passed the law in 1994. In 2019, he assaulted his girlfriend in a parking lot, and after realizing that a bystander saw the assault, he fired a gun at the witness and threatened to shoot his girlfriend if she told anyone. Two months later, a Texas court granted her a protective order, suspended Rahimi's gun license, and warned him that possession of a gun, while the order remained in effect, is a federal felony. Rahimi repeatedly violated the court order, threatened another woman with a gun, and fired a gun in five different locations in a period of one month. Incidents that range from shooting a gun repeatedly at another driver after a collision to firing multiple shots in the air after a fast food restaurant declined a friend's credit card. When police searched Rahimi's home, they found a pistol, a rifle, magazines, ammunition, and a copy of the protective order. He pleaded guilty to charges of violating the federal gun law and was sentenced to six years in prison. But he continued to press his constitutional challenge, and ultimately, a federal appeals court ruled that the law violates the Second Amendment right to bear arms because there was nothing like it in the 1790s. The federal government appealed, contending that there's a long historical tradition in this country of disarming people who are dangerous. Former Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dreeben was in charge of the Justice Department's criminal docket for 24 years. He says there's a good reason there's no precise analog from the 1700s. At the founding, domestic violence was not considered to be a serious problem that warranted legal intervention. Women were viewed more or less as property of their husbands. The second feature of change dynamics is that firearms are now the weapon of choice in domestic violence conflicts in a way that was not true at the founding. Those realities, the government argues, justify a, quote, more nuanced analog to the 1700s. I think there's a certain whistling past the judicial graveyard, if you will. 
Jerry Beard is a former assistant federal defender in Texas who served in the office that's representing Zaki Rahimi. He says the government is, quote, throwing spaghetti at the wall in hopes that something sticks. They're basically saying we don't like this test, (laughs) so we want something else. But the test is the test. If they cannot point to an analog, they're in trouble. The statute is probably unconstitutional. It already presumptively is. Lawyer Dreeben counters that the court has always adjusted its doctrine to fit modern times. There were no phones or tracking devices at the founding, for example, but the court still outlawed wiretaps and GPS tracking devices without a warrant. Today, the information about guns and domestic violence is shocking. In 2019, 70 women were shot and killed by a domestic partner each month. Nearly one million women have been shot at. And domestic assaults that involve guns are 11 times more likely to cause death than assaults without guns. Dreben notes that women aren't the only victims in these cases. Domestic violence with a gun is a leading cause of death for children. More than half of all mass shootings are perpetrated by people with a record of domestic violence. And finally, he says, domestic violence calls result in the highest number of police fatalities, almost all of them involving guns. But Clark Neely of the Cato Institute replies that Zaki Rahimi had not been convicted of any crime when he was first stripped of the right to have a gun and then sentenced to prison for having guns. The biggest problem with this law is that it allows somebody to be dispossessed of their firearms on the basis of a state domestic violence order without any showing that they actually engaged in domestic violence. Jerry Beard challenges the government's assertion that the Second Amendment is meant to protect law-abiding, responsible citizens. What about a college student who smokes a joint? Is he or she a law-abiding, responsible citizen? He contends that the government knows that if it loses this case, the next laws to fall could well be those that bar all convicted felons from having guns. Former Deputy Solicitor General Dreeben sees the dangers as far more imminent if the court strikes down the law banning guns for those covered by domestic violence protective orders. First of all, it will rip a hole in the national instant criminal background check system, which currently requires protective orders of the type that Mr. Rahimi had. According to statistics compiled by the FBI, nearly 13,000 gun sales each year are stopped by a background check due to a history of domestic violence. And more generally, he says, a decision against the federal law could cast doubt on a network of prohibitions enacted by state and local governments that have been shown to be more effective because of their greater breadth. Jerry Beard calls that a parade of horribles. That strikes me as a tad dramatic. I have more confidence in the court than perhaps the government does. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Boston has become what's thought to be just among just what's thought to be just a handful of American cities attempting to create a database of all the people enslaved within its borders before abolition. It's 829. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's been one month since Hamas attacked southern Israel, killing more than 1,400 people and taking hostage more than 200 others. Subsequent Israeli attacks have killed more than 10,000 people in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. Israeli troops are still surrounding Gaza City. That is in the northern Gaza Strip, and it's where Israel says Hamas is headquartered. It's also where many Palestinian civilians still are. There's fierce fighting there. And in the last few days, Israel has announced safe passage, uh, what they call, for Palestinians to flee south. Um, but that road where they've been fleeing is so battered that you know even elderly people I've spoken with say uh, they've had to walk miles on foot. The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is repeating his call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. In London today, King Charles III pledged that the British government will work with international partners to address the security challenges posed by events in the Middle East. This includes the consequences of the barbaric acts of terrorism against the people of Israel, facilitating humanitarian support into Gaza and supporting the cause of peace and stability in the Middle East. It was the first King's speech to the British Parliament in 72 years. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Polls across Massachusetts are now open for Election Day today. There are elections in several dozen cities and towns, including Boston, Worcester, and Peabody. Secretary of State Bill Galvin notes it's the first municipal election since vote-by-mail became a right in the state. It's a very good thing. I think it gives people the opportunity to participate. We've seen higher turnout or activity levels in communities where there is active effort being made to encourage people to vote by mail, so we're excited about that. He reminds people who plan to vote by mail that it's too late to drop your ballot in a mailbox. At this point, mail-in ballots have to be placed in drop boxes or taken to local election offices before polls close. Lawmakers in the Massachusetts House plan to vote tomorrow on giving emergency funding to the state shelter system. State leaders say that system is being strained by arriving migrants. Families new to the system may be put on a wait list before they get housing. Governor Healy has asked for $250 million in immediate funding. Local health experts say lagging COVID vaccination rates are a cause for concern. Only about 10 percent of people in Massachusetts have gotten a new booster. Dr. Benjamin Linus is an infectious disease specialist at Boston Medical Center. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston that the long-term impacts of COVID-19 are still an emerging issue. Clearly, it's a spectrum of symptoms. For some folks, it looks like fatigue and brain fog or cough that might last a couple of months. For others, it can look like more long-term damage to things like their heart um, or a really permanent cognitive decline. State health officials report COVID infection numbers have fallen in recent weeks after an uptick in late summer. It's 8.33. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. The Celtics' undefeated season came to an end last night in Minnesota. They lost to the Timberwolves 114-109 to in overtime. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Stars 3-2 last night in Dallas. The Bees' next game is Thursday at home against the New York Islanders. And Red Sox first baseman Tristan Casas is a finalist for this year's American League Rookie of the Year Award. The winner will be announced next Monday. Light showers are possible for the next couple hours. Then overcast skies gradually clear. The afternoon will be mostly sunny in the upper 60s. Temperatures fall to the mid-30s tonight and skies stay mostly clear. Sunny tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Yesterday, we brought you the stories of a group of young men that we met who are locked up in Maryland for serious crimes like robbery and assault. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to welcome you here to Maryland and to Baltimore. Today, we're going to hear from a key official with a long career in corrections and juvenile services. A new era of somewhat vilifying young people is upon us. And so we also need to step up, all of us together. Uh, And I look forward to standing at the gate with all of you, as you have done in the past, and as I have done in the past, to stop young people from being over-incarcerated, to make sure that we treat those young people the way any of us would want our own children treated if they were in the same circumstances. That's Vincent Schiraldi, secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services. He was speaking at the National Conference on Juvenile Justice held in Baltimore earlier this year. And he was talking about the fact that in some parts of the country, frightening episodes of juvenile crime are once again making headlines, pushing some in the public and public officials to demand get-tough policies. But nationwide, the number of youth arrests for violent crime, like murder, robbery, and aggravated assault, have actually dropped over the past decade to reach a new low of 424,300 in 2020, half the number of arrests from five years earlier, according to federal statistics. But most of these crimes involved robbery, which includes carjacking. In Maryland, state figures show a similar pattern, an overall drop in youth violence over the past decade, but more and more youths getting involved in carjackings and gun violence since 2020. Giraldi's career includes a stint as head of New York's notorious Rikers Island, which he tried to close. He sat down with me to talk about current challenges and solutions. You've had a long career in this in this space. You've been an activist, you've been an academic, and you've served in a number of jurisdictions in, in a similar role. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something about the current moment that stands out? This moment feels a little like the super predator era of the 90s when there was an uptick in juvenile crime and people started to reach for very punitive and, in my view, unsuccessful approaches that locked more kids up. But 
if somebody sticks an AR-15 in your face, do you care and steals your car? Do you care that it's not as bad as the 90s? Or well, My main point was when we locked all those kids up in the 90s, it was bad public policy. And I don't want to do that bad public policy again, period, paragraph. By the way, it's not as bad as it was in the 90s, but it doesn't mean you don't interrupt gun violence. It just means that we need to kind of keep it in perspective and set sound public policy based on data and research, not hyperbole. There's a kind of a quirk in Maryland where kids who are charged with or accused of, they might not even have been charged yet, are automatically sent to adult court. Right. First, they go straight to an adult booking facility, adult jail, spend a couple of days until they see a judge who ha uh, decides on bail. Part of the bail decision would be, do you stay in an adult jail or do you go to this juvenile facility, right? So some of them are there two days and then they come back to us. And then their case just takes a really long time to be resolved, sometimes six months. Most of what happens at the end of that is a dismissal or return to juvenile court. And that's wasted time because they totally could be getting time. services, they could be in school. Super frustrated. Many of those kids will have waited the six months. Sometimes it's eight or nine months, by the way. Six months is just the average. There is a perception in some quarters that youth are driving the increase in homicide and violence. That is not true. If you look at, in Maryland, the teenage group is about the fourth highest uh, gun violence group. Young adults and older young adults, right? 20 to 25, 25 to 30, 30 to 35, all have higher gun violence rates than teenagers. Doesn't mean teenagers aren't high, by the way. Doesn't mean we're not higher than any other, you know, industrialized nation because we have crazy gun violence rates. It just means we're, those are not the highest. You see teenagers carjacking other people. You see kids, um, gosh, these smash and grab robberies, which are not necessarily violent crimes, but they are very unsettling for people when they are present for these things. Do you have a theory of this? Like, what, what do you think is going on? We had a simultaneous, very substantial reduction in the number of kids who are locked up, 70% from 2000 to 2020. And we had about an 80-plus percent decline in arrests of juveniles during that period of time. So it was, it was kind of a virtuous cycle. Fewer kids getting arrested, fewer kids getting locked up and learning. And then we had this pandemic. Kids were disrupted from schools. Uh, parents were losing their jobs. Mental health issues were sort of increasing for both the young people and their families and their neighborhoods. People started to arm themselves in those neighborhoods, mostly adults, but sometimes kids. And when you have a lot of people with a lot of frustration, with a lot of guns in their pockets, you stop having fistfights and you start having shootouts. Where are kids that young getting guns like that? Mostly from the black market and from their parents' gun lockers or hmm. you know, underwear drawers. Are you worried about what you see, the current sort of state of things? Absolutely. And what, I mean, what I, is it that worries you? You know, I walk around with a, with a folder full of kids who have been shot on my caseload since I got here. It's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, for my part, I got to not worry about the things I can't fix, like gun control and other things. And I got to focus on the kids that are most likely to come to harm or to harm somebody, which is pretty much the same factors, and try to steer them away from that. What what are your thoughts about how that can be accomplished? We are going to provide you with a suitcase of supports that's 
very real and very immediate to try to push you out of this really dangerous path we see you on. And so what's in that suitcase? Um, life coaches that many of whom have walked in the same shoes as the kids have walked, right? They're formerly incarcerated people that are going to see the kids immediately and every single day. Fiscal incentives to reward children when they achieve certain milestones, literally. Supported work, uh, supported college attendance for the kids who have GEDs and want to get out of town and go someplace that they're engaged in deep learning. That's what a lot of middle-class kids do. And frankly, that's a pretty good way to spend your young adult years. And I know it's a really unfair question, but I'm going to ask it is, when do you think you will start to see results? I think we're seeing results already in some pockets around the country, like West Baltimore, a one-third decline. So we need to learn those lessons, and we need to do what they did there in lots of other places that have high rates of gun violence. When we do that, we'll see results. That was Maryland Secretary of Juvenile Services, Vincent Schiraldi. We spoke in Baltimore. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a case before the National Labor Relations Board that asks whether college athletes should be considered employees of the schools for which they play. Light rain is possible through about mid-morning, then it gradually clears up for a sunny day today in the upper 60s. Overnight, it falls to the mid-30s, then upper 40s tomorrow, and sunny. It's 56 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan. Integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great with Rob Capello, exploring songs by Joni Mitchell and Carol King. This Saturday at Jordan Hall, CelebritySeries.org. Cambridge-based Series Therapeutics is laying off more than 160 workers. That's half of its workforce. It'll affect people at its offices in Cambridge and Waltham. The restructuring comes as Series plans to focus its efforts on a drug that was recently approved by the FDA to treat infections in the colon. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is objecting to the terms outlined in the bankruptcy filing of Boston-based Vantage Travel. The international travel company went out of business last month. The Boston Globe reports Vantage customers are owed more than $100 million in refunds from the company. But Campbell argues travel credits offered under the bankruptcy terms act more as coupons rather than refunds. People using prosthetic exoskeletons made by Marlboro-based Rewalk can soon be reimbursed for the equipment under Medicare. The device helps with mobility for people with neurological conditions. In March, it became the first device of its kind to receive FDA approval for use on curbs and stairs. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning.
This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston has published a groundbreaking database that sheds light on the city's history of slavery. It's the start of an ongoing effort to collect information about people who were enslaved in the city before abolition. Kira Singleton is one of the curators. She's also executive director of the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So how did this database come about? So really this database is in many ways, the brainchild of Joseph Bagley, who's Boston City chief archaeologist. When we were at the very beginnings of talking about this exhibit and what it would look like, you know, it was really important for him to make sure that all of the names of the enslaved people that different researchers had found over the course of years was listed so that people could see the extent of slavery in Boston, but also as a way for people to start to um, make connections and maybe start to figure out who their ancestors are, also to really think about the type of labor that enslaved people did that was really vital to the building of Boston, but also it serves as a memorial in many ways. So how many people are in there now? So I think the last time I checked, it's about 2,300 people, maybe a little bit more. And do you think that's the tip of the iceberg? Oh, I think it's just the beginning. I think as more people do more research, we're going to uncover a lot more names. It does include people who aren't named, though, right? Yes. So sometimes in the records, you just get a Negro man or a Negro boy or a Negro woman or a Negro servant. Even though we didn't have the names, we still wanted to list those individuals as well as a way to make sure that, you know, we never leave anyone out. And, you know, hopefully in the course of doing that research, we'll be able to find out some more names, uh, especially of the people who are unnamed, because oftentimes people appear in a lot of different records. And in many cases, in most cases, the enslaver is also named. Was that a deliberate choice? Yes, it was absolutely a deliberate choice. I think in so many ways, when we talk about enslaved people without talking about the people who enslaved them, we make slavery normalized. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just a part of, you know, of society in the 18th and 19th centuries. But actually by listing these individuals, you start to see just how prevalent slavery was, but also to start to change the narrative of what these enslaved people were doing. You know, they're working in all different types of industries, industries that we don't often associate with slavery, whether that is pottery, whether that is enslaved people working at shipyards, enslaved people working at distilleries, enslaved people, you know, being enslaved by churches. But when you do that, you start to disrupt who we think an enslaver is. What are the implications of the city collecting and publishing this information? I think the biggest implication is to really demystify the fact that slavery is a part of Northern society, that it was a part of Massachusetts. I think so often we still associate slavery with a Southern story, but look at how widespread and prevalent it was. And I think the other implication is that it starts to open up the conversation around reparations. Then we can also start to talk about the impacts and the legacies of slavery and how systemic racism has in many ways underdeveloped 
develop marginalized communities and is an essential part of how we should understand the place that we all live in. To tell the truth doesn't take anything away from our local history, but it actually enriches it. And it also gives credit to the enslaved people who were doing a lot of the work to build out Boston to the city that we now know of today. Kira Singleton is a co-creator of the Boston Slavery Exhibit. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rupa. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. The look at how conservationists were able to restore a big penguin colony in Argentina and how Thailand is trying to revitalize its tourism industry. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. In 1972, there was a historic thaw in the Cold War. Communist China sent a gift to Washington. I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. As the D.C. Zoo prepares to return three pandas to China, we look back at panda diplomacy on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Prime Minister of Israel says the country is open to small pauses in current fighting in order to negotiate the release of hostages by Hamas. In Ohio, voters will decide today whether or not to pass an amendment to the state constitution that would protect access to abortion. And the U.S. Supreme Court will consider whether people under a domestic violence protection order should have access to guns. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90. WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Some light rain is possible through about mid morning today, then it clears up for a mostly sunny afternoon in the upper 60s. Tonight, clear skies in mid 30s, tomorrow, sunny in mid 40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Open enrollment, a time for choices, and a time for scams. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the shared office space company WeWork has filed for bankruptcy protection. Once valued at tens of billions of dollars, it has faced mismanagement, heavy debt, and the shift to working from home. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. WeWork's bankruptcy is not a surprise. In August, it warned that it may not be able to stay in business as more people worked remotely and fewer used its co-working spaces. The company spent years trying to turn its business around after a disastrous attempt to go public in 2019, during which investors questioned the company's governance and heavy spending. It improved its finances in the years since and is now a publicly traded company. 
but it's also taken a huge pandemic hit, having to keep making monthly payments on expensive office leases, even as some locations sit largely empty. In its last quarterly report, WeWork said paying for office space consumed 74% of its income. Its stock has lost nearly all of its value. In its bankruptcy filing, the company says it's renegotiated a vast majority of its debt but wants to reject leases at certain locations. I'm Novasavo for Marketplace. While China's imports surprisingly moved up in October, its exports fell more than anticipated, implying the world might use less fuel. Crude oil is down 1.8 percent in New York, below 80 a barrel. I see Dow and S&P futures are down two-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures are little changed. Are college athletes really employees of their colleges and universities? That is the question at the center of a case involving the University of Southern California. A judge with the National Labor Relations Board will begin hearings today, which could change college athletics as we know it. Here's Marketplace's Henry Epp. Under federal law, someone is considered an employee. If they are working under the control of an employer, and usually that's for some kind of compensation. Risa Lieberwitz, a professor of labor and employment law at Cornell, says it's a broad definition, and college athletes, who are often compensated through scholarships, seem to fit it, argues Ellen Zavian at George Washington University. They're told when to get up, what to do during the day, and when to perform. But if student-athletes succeed in being reclassified as employees, Zavian says they could negotiate for a cut of the revenues that colleges, conferences, and the NCAA now control a percentage of television, a percentage of merchandise, a percentage of all those revenue streams. And if that happens, says David Barry at Southern Utah University. It would fundamentally change the way in which this enterprise is organized. But Barry's not holding his breath. He says he closely watched a similar effort fall short eight years ago. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Tis the season for picking benefits, open enrollment for private health insurance at work, Affordable Care Act plans, and also Medicare. Now, these decisions can be complex and scammers can take advantage, often targeting seniors. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams consulted experts. Just like many of us, scammers tend to follow the news, and open enrollment season is in the news and in ads. And the criminals know that, and they know that we're hearing about it. Kathy Stokes is director of fraud prevention programs with AARP. And they take advantage and will try to get us to purchase a plan that doesn't exist or share our Medicare numbers so that they can sell it on the dark web to the highest bidder. The Federal Trade Commission is warning consumers to be wary of open enrollment scams that promise better Medicare or Medicare Advantage benefits or cheaper prescription drugs. Some estimates put Medicare fraud, including elder abuse, in the neighborhood of $60 billion a year. But Darren Houghton of the National Council on Aging says there are ways to spot the scammers. Number one, if they're calling you out of the blue. 
Medicare doesn't call them. Social Security doesn't call them. And most of the time, unless you have a business relationship, an insurance company won't call them either. There are places to go for reliable info, like Medicare.gov or your local state health insurance assistance program. Plus, there are strategies families and friends can use to protect against scams in general, especially in the era of more advanced AI that can even mimic a loved one's voice. So one of the things that we've come up with is using safe words. So, okay, before I do this, what is our safe word? That AI has no idea what to say there. And those kinds of conversations are a big part of the fight against scammers. Here's AARP's Kathy Stokes again. Go home and call your mom or, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your family. The more we talk about it, the more we essentially inoculate others because data show that if you know a specific scam, you're 80% less likely to engage with it. So be skeptical of random phone calls, suspicious of any emails asking for your personal or health data, and have conversations with family about the risks during open enrollment. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. And we'd promised to keep an eye on the banking system snafu on Friday that delayed direct deposits for an estimated 900,000 customers at multiple banks. Banks have promised to sort it out. Still, there's concern if, say, a paycheck did not land as expected, there may have been insufficient funds for other scheduled payments. My team reached out to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which told us it is monitoring this. A representative said affected consumers must not be penalized for overdraft fees, late fees, or been uh, be given other penalties. If problems persist, the URL consumerfinance.gov slash complaint is one way to report it. Our producers are James Graham, Naomi Rainey, Olivia Wilson, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Cloudy skies gradually clear and we'll have a mostly sunny afternoon today in the upper 60s. Still mostly clear tonight in the mid-30s, then sunny tomorrow in the upper 40s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.